Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. They were the first family of horse racing. The Turcots, a group of five brothers that once and still is the preeminent name of horse racing in North America. The most famous of the Turcot brothers, Ron, who rode aboard Secretariat en route to the Triple Crown in 1973, could have been the first and only jockey to win the Triple Crown in back-to-back years. In this edition of the program, we celebrate Ron and his younger brothers, Noel, Rudy, Roger, and Eves Turcotte, and the impact they had on horse racing both here in the United States and also north of the border in Canada. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Today, we will talk to Canadian Horse Racing Hall of Fame inductee and author Curtis Stock about his new book, The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty. We'll talk about the five brothers who grew up poor in New Brunswick, Canada, and their unlikely rise to stardom in horse racing and simultaneously overcoming adversity and tragedy. Later in the show, we will send a shout out to one of the greatest rivalries in pro sports. These two historic NBA franchises have met more often in the NBA postseason than any other matchup, and this year will be another chapter in their long feud. And finally, in our top five, highlighting historic moments in sports that took place between the dates of April 30th through the May the 6th. Highlighting those days in history include the first ever perfect game in baseball's modern era, the last NBA game in a basketball cathedral, and a team that was a 5,000 to 1 long shot at the beginning of their season who were crowned champions at the end of it. So sit back, pump up the volume because you are going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. Ladies and gentlemen, and we're back, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, 
a proud member of the Sports History Network. And we have a guest on board today is a man by the name of Curtis Stock. He is the author of The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty. Now, with the Kentucky Derby just a couple of weeks away, and the 50th anniversary of Ron Turcott riding Secretariat to the Triple Crown in one of the greatest sports performances ever. It, I think it was appropriate and, in fact, my honor to have Mr. Stock on to talk about that incredible horse racing family. Now, his new book, The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty, not only talks about Ron, but he also talks about the, all the, the brothers that were involved in horse racing, all of the trials and tribulations that that family went through, not only being at the pinnacle of horse racing, not only in Canada, but also here in the United States, but all of the things that that family and those four brothers had to overcome to become jockeys and to become the famous jockeys that they became. So Mr. So, Mr. Curtis, I really appreciate you coming on board. Thank you for joining us, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here, Dana. Now, we can, now let's talk about what got you started in writing this book. Now, we were talking um, right before we came on. You were saying that this had this project of yours, writing this story, took a long time to do. How long did it take? And more importantly, what was some of the things about this story that that made you want to write about it and tell the whole world about this? Well, it took about three years to write it and research it, although I had it in my mind for about 20 years about writing this book because it's such a compelling, and as the title of the book says, remarkable story of the uh, horse racing dynasty, the Turcotts, five brothers who all left the forests and the woods of New Brunswick, uh, Maritime Province in Canada, to... uh, ride horses around North America and do exceptionally well. Now you have this, now, now, now this book, you talk about the way the book starts out is I think is really intriguing. Um, the beginning of the book, you talk about something that happens to the family that has been, that was very traumatic to that family. What was it about, what, what was it that happened? Well, there was a fire about uh, 10 days before Christmas of 1948 and uh, the, the, they lost everything in the fire. And uh, Alfred, who is the father of the family, had uh, needed money, and he just had just canceled the home insurance on the on the house. So they were left with essentially nothing. Yeah, I was reading the book, and it, it was one of those things where you just felt so heartbroken for that family. And that, that is one of the things that I've noticed about this is that there was a lot of heartbreak and a lot of, yeah. um, a lot of things that, that happened to that family, but they were able to overcome that. And do you think that the fam, that having that fire happening to them at, at such, at such of a, at that time really propelled that family to have the, have the ability to overcome all of those, um, over those instances of negativity and all of those instances of maybe tried triumph over tragedies type of thing. Yeah, that's what it was. I mean, it is a triumph and tragedy and they did triumph over the tragedy. Uh, there was a lot of tragedy in the family, as you know, uh, Ron was, uh, Turcott, the, was the oldest brother of the five jockeys. Uh, he was paralyzed in an accident in New York in 1978 uh, paralyzed from the waist down, is in a wheelchair. Uh, the next brother to come along was Noel, and uh, Noel and uh, Roger both took their lives, and both after struggling with uh, alcoholism and losing weight that you need to do to become a jockey. And uh, Rudy, he died of alcoholism, and Eves, he was hurt in a spill up here in Canada where he fractured his skull and had three brain blades, and he couldn't ride again, so... I mean, with that story, and you talk about, you know, their triumph over all of this tragedy, the oldest brother, which is Ron, the oldest and perhaps the most famous of the Turcotte brothers, um, 
he had an accident, as you said, in the late 1970s at the same track where he had his greatest performance on Secretary, right. which was, you know, which was very ironic, so to speak. Really? Yeah. Both at Belmont, New York. And, you know, with that, with that being said, with, um, no, and the rest of the brothers took their own lives. You know, when a jockey, and you have to excuse me because I'm not really versed in horse racing as as you well are, but to make weight, there's a lot of things that a person has to do to make weight because you have to weigh a certain amount to ride a horse in a race. Correct? Yeah, the lighter the better, and you have to you have to be at least. Uh, you can't be any heavier than about 115, 116 pounds. And when Ron came to the track, he weighed 128 pounds, and he was told that he had to get down to 108. Wow. So what was some of the things that he had to do to do that? You know, like not eat or or different types of exercise? What was the thing that he had to do to accomplish that? Ron was the lucky one, actually, of the family as far as that went. Uh, While he struggled to maintain his weight, early in his career, uh, he was able to not have to do some of the things that the other brothers did, which was, you know, they'd put on sweatsuits and go in saunas and steam baths and put on layer and layer of clothing and get in their cars, crank up the heat as high as it would go and take diuretics like Lasix and, uh, and essentially not eat very much at all. <laughs> Now, now, Ron was, of course, everybody well knows him. He was not only rode secretary, but he also rode another famous horse during his career early in the 1970s before he rode secretary. Tell us about that. Well, he rode so many good horses. He rode uh, uh, Northern Dancer. I don't know if that's the one they were referring to, but he rode uh, Fort Marcy and Chuve and uh, Lalazane and uh, Northern Dancer. Uh, he, he rode like a lot of really good horses. Now, was Riva Ridge somewhere within that? Was that before? Yeah, Riva Ridge was the year before, and Riva Ridge won the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont. He lost the Preakness, and that's only because it rained. It rained very hard, and the track was sloppy, and Riva Ridge was not a horse that could handle the slop. So, uh, he, while Riva Ridge lost the Preakness in uh, 1972, uh, given a fast track, he probably would have been a triple crown winner himself. Now that would okay, that that that's be, that could probably be one of the really great what if questions because yeah. you know he could have been Ron Turcott could have won the triple crown in back to back years, right? You know, which would have been amazing because we haven't because there was a long stretch in horse racing where we didn't have a triple crown winner for like ages you know i think our friends was the last one or alidor like in the late 1970s and then you had a long stretch before we had another one um but he could have been easily the first the only if he is he the only could he have been the only one to win back-to-back triple crowns yeah nobody has ever done that and uh uh it was 25 years like you say uh 50 years ago uh this year that uh that had happened and uh Reaver Ridge uh, became, went on to good things, but not as good as Secretariat. Secretariat was the greatest thoroughbred of all time. There's no question about it. Yeah, especially the, the performance that he did in the Belmont Stakes in 1973, yeah. winning by, what was it, 31 lengths? 31 lengths, yeah, the size of a football field. And you watch the film of that. It, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I remember watching the footage of that, like, about maybe 20 or so years ago uh, when they, they did a special on the great moments of the 20th century and here in the United States. And one of the things, one of the documentaries they did was on secretariat. They had this countdown actually of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. And it put secretariat in there. I think they were like number 34 or something, the greatest yeah. athlete of the 20th yeah. century. So, I'll, so why is a horse up there? I really didn't know. And I watched that documentary and his performance in the Belmont States just literally blew me away. I mean, there's so many stories about people who are watching this at home and watching it along trackside that was actually crying, watching yeah. this horse go by, you know, doing that race. Um, of course, and then the Ron being the jockey of it became very famous. How did he handle that success? How did he handle all of the publicity doing the, the run up 
do the Triple Crown. He stayed. Uh, he stayed the same as he always was. He's very, very humble man. Uh, he doesn't brag in any sort of way at all about uh, what he accomplished. Uh, he gives all the credit to the horses, especially the Secretariat. He said he was just a passenger that day on, on in the Belmont fifty years ago, and that it was all Secretariat. And the thing is that he said that Secretariat. We never saw. A, how good secretary it really was that uh, when he was syndicated at the end of his 1973 campaign, that he would have gone on to be even better, that he was just getting good. He won his last two races on grass and Ron said that he was a better horse on grass than he even was on dirt. We all know how good he was on dirt. <laughs> That's scary to say that he's probably better on grass. And we actually saw his, his performance right. on dirt and it's, Unbelievable, to be completely honest. I remember watching this this doc this 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 interview that Ron did not too long, uh, not too long ago, maybe about 20, 20, 25 years ago. Um, how he how he approached that race and what he did during the race. He just basically let the reins go. Once he got on that back stretch, he just let the reins go and just let let Secretariat do his own thing. You know, and a lot of people say that this this horse was an actual athlete and watching the film footage and watching what he did and watching what Secretariat did. He definitely was. Yeah. And uh, Lucien uh, Laurent, the trainer, uh, didn't know what was going on. He kept thinking that, uh, you know, that he was going too fast and that he couldn't keep going that far. And but Secretary just kept reeling off the fractions faster and faster and opening up and opening up until at the top of the lane he turned back and looked and there was nobody coming and and he went on and he set a record in New York, which like the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness are track records that have never been broken. So you're talking about, you know, fifty years of setting world records that have never been touched. Now talking about the other brothers, there there there's Ron, which was by far the most famous, but then you had, we have made mention of the four other brothers. Um, their names are Noel, Rudy, Roger, and Eves. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about those in particular. What, what were their personalities like? You know, of course, all of the brothers following Ron, who was the oldest, and it, what got them into horse racing to begin with, basically to follow their brother's footsteps? Well, it's an interesting story of how Ron got uh, to be a jockey. He was living in uh, Drummond in New Brunswick, and uh, he wasn't making much money, and uh, he wanted a better life. So he went to Toronto and tried to get a job as a carpenter, but there was a carpentry strike on. So him and his good friend, Reg Pelche, wound up picking worms at a golf course in a cemetery, and they got paid $3 for a 1,000 worms. So he wasn't going to get rich. And uh, so he came down and they were both Reg and Ron were going to leave Toronto and go back home to New Brunswick. And it was uh, the first Saturday in May in 1960. And he came down the stairs and the landlord just happened to be watching the Kentucky Derby, which had a Canadian horse in it called Victoria Park. And uh, the landlord said to Ron, he says, you know, you're about the right size and stature to be a jockey. And Ron said, what's a jockey? And uh, the landlord said, the little guy's in the white pants. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day, the Reg and Ron, they went to uh, Woodbine and uh, they hitchhiked and took the bus and the trolley car and went out to Woodbine. And a uh, trainer happened to be just driving by and picked them up and took them into the barn area, which uh, they didn't have a license, of course. But he, got them in somehow and they went to the racing secretary's office and the racing secretary amazingly enough let them across the street to where E.P. Taylor barn is that was Winfield Farms and uh, he gave the shank to Ron and said here you go just keep turning left so he walked, <laughs> he walked the horses for hours and hours every day and uh, within two years from that he was Canada's leading rider, which is amazing. And he was Canada's leading rider back-to-back -back years. That is one of the great origin stories I've ever heard. <laughs> to yeah. be completely honest. You know, you're like, okay, well, you got, you, you're big enough to be a jockey? What's a jockey? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, he'd never seen a thoroughbred race. He'd never seen a, 
you know, he had, he had been working with draft horses. That was his job in the woods was to look after the horses and they were draft horses and they weighed about, you know, 1400 or 1500 pounds as opposed to a thoroughbred, which weighs around 1100 pounds. So they were horses that pulled the logs and brought them either into the river where they would make their way to the mill or they would drag the logs to the lumber mill themselves. But he run, looked after the horses. And uh, when, when he went to E.P. Taylor's barn, the uh, next day, the trainer said to him, he says, you know a few things about horses, don't you? And he says, yeah, all my life I spent around horses. So, but not riding them, of course. And he had never been in the saddle before he came to Canada or to uh, Toronto either. Now, you had mentioned that the the father was a was a lumberman in in New Brunswick, so that's where obviously that's where Ron he got his start working alongside his dad in the lumber in in the forests of New Brunswick, and, and, and hauling lumber with these horses. You know, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ronnie and Noel and uh, uh, Rudy they all worked in the lumber yards too. Uh, Eves he picked potatoes. Uh, that's another thing that New Brunswick is famous for, is their potato farming. Well, that's interesting. I mean, one of the great one of the great origin stories uh, of of any famous sports legend like Ron Turcotte is is, is got to be right there, top ten all time from what I've ever heard. Um, and then you have to, you know, you have these 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 five brothers, okay, and a lot of them met tragic dealt with tragedy all five of them dealt with different tra- tragic things um you said that ron was paralyzed and a couple of other brothers committed suicide one died of alcoholism you know uh, was it a lot of it dealing with the 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 rigors of being a jockey or were there contributing factors of these of these men well i think it were contributing factors uh we don't know but we assume that uh, they were both obviously depressed at the time because both of them, <clears throat> Noel and uh, and Roger, couldn't ride anymore because they couldn't make the weight. So and and they they had aspired to greatness and they did achieve a lot of greatness. Noel was one of the top riders in Canada and especially on the grass. Uh, he, he did very well with a horse called Bell Jest who was Canada's top grass horse. And uh, Rudy, many will tell you, even Ron thinks that Rudy was a better jockey than he was. And uh, Eves, he was a top rider here in uh, Alberta. Uh, Rudy, he went on to uh, the eastern Atlantic coast and went up and down there winning races everywhere he went. And uh, Roger was North America's leading apprentice rider in 1975. Oh, interesting. Um, when you talk about these th- these jockeys, and you talk about the four brothers, um, and obviously they're looked upon, especially Ron, being looked upon as Canadian. And I know that Canadians take a lot of pride in their athletic heroes. Um, is Ron with you know, is Ron Turcotte and his brothers, how are they looked upon by regular Canadian, by Canadians as a whole, as, as, as sports figures? Well, they're, they're the greatest by far family of history of, of jockeys in Canada, Canadian history, for sure. Um, they did, uh, you know, they won uh, over 8,000 races together combined for purse earnings of just, under sixty million dollars, so they won a lot of races. And I see you took you it took you three years to uh, research this book. Was there any story that you would like to share that, when you heard it, really shocked you, or is something that you didn't know about this family that really, like, wow, I didn't know that? Was there anything that came across? Oh, there was lots of things that came across. Yeah. Uh, I guess mostly, though, I don't think I knew exactly how good Secretariat really was. Uh, Like, he lost uh, five of his 21 races, but three of those races uh, were no fault of Secretariat at all. In the Wood Memorial, uh, 
he raced with an, an abscess on his lip that was about the size of a quarter, and Ron couldn't pick up the horse's head. Every time he tried to pick up the head, his head with the bit, it hurt Secretariat too much, so he shied away. And then in the uh, Whitney, he ran with a fever of 104. And then the Woodward, he lost, which he also lost, he wasn't supposed to run that day. Reva Ridge was supposed to run, but the track came up sloppy. And as we said, Reva Ridge could not run in the slop. So they scratched Reva Ridge and they put Secretariat in. And Secretariat hadn't even been hardly trained at all towards that race for sure. And wasn't being trained toward any specific race in particular. Okay, and and you have a, a, looking at your career, uh, uh, Mr. Stock. You is is extensive. It is extensive. Talk about some of the things that you have that you've done in horse racing because you are a big figure in Canada when it comes to horse racing. Tell us about that. Well, I was uh, inducted into the Canadian Horse Racing Hall of Fame five years ago, uh, and I've won uh, 11 sovereign awards for writing about horse racing. So I've done quite well with horse racing. It wasn't the only sport that I covered, of course. I also covered a lot of golf and uh, got to go to the Masters a few times in the British Open and uh, the PGA Championship. Um, Went to uh, three Super Bowls. And uh, I, I've had a great life. <laughs> you seem like you'd be a very interesting person just to hang out with, because I know that you are loaded, loaded, loaded with stories about horse racing and some of the travels that you've had. And I'm going to let you go with this. Um, you may mention before, before we came on, that you're having, you're not doing pretty much anything as far as like any projects upcoming. But I will have to ask you this. Uh, what were some of the things about this book? You said that some of the stories that you, but what were some of the things about this writing this book and doing this project that you really enjoyed that you'd look back on with fondness? Well, all of it really. I mean, like it was a lot of work to do, but uh, very proud that it, uh, I could get it all together. Uh, I went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles and uh, microfiche and uh, looking for you know, all the details that I needed to put the book together and then talking with the Turcotte family, of course. Uh, I spent three days with Ron in New Brunswick and uh, he was just unbelievably uh, kind and hospitable. When I met him in the lobby at the hotel, uh, there was about 20 people around Ron and they all wanted to talk to him and they, he just, and we went for dinner and, uh, uh, and then we came home and there was a knock on the door and two ladies from Kentucky had driven all the way from Kentucky to New Brunswick to get Ron's autograph. That's amazing. You yeah. know, that's amazing for somebody who didn't even know what a jockey was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you had no idea. And then, like we said, within two years, he became Canada's leading rider. And uh, it, there's no telling how good he would have kept going if he hadn't had that tragic accident because he was an unbelievable jockey. Mr. Stock, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. And uh, and, and plug, go ahead and plug your book one more time for us. Okay. Well, it's called uh, The Turcots, The Remarkable Story of a Horse Racing Dynasty. It's in bookstores now. It's at Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's on uh, Amazon. And it's in bookstores everywhere. Mr. Stock, I really appreciate you coming on. And anytime you want to come back to talk about more horse racing and educate a brother like me about horse racing, you're more than welcome to. All right, we'll do that. Curtis Stock, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thanks, Dana. I appreciate it. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. Give me a second to talk about Joe Zagorski's pro football in the 1970s. In the 70s, the sport of pro football grew in popularity like never before. The game became more modern, more technologically savvy, and thanks to the tinkering of the rules throughout the decade, the product that one saw in pro football made the struggle on the field so much more exciting to watch. When you hear Joe Zagorski talk about pro football in the 1970s, it will bring you back to a time and place where your recollections of the 70s are joyfully relived once again. 
Joe explores many different facets and elements of the 70s, like the players, the teams, the games, the controversies, and the legacies that surround the decade. Take a listen to Joe Zagorski, an NFL author and host of the Pro Football in the 1970s podcast. It's just one of the great podcasts available through the Sports History Network. Check them out at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there that you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And now it's time for us for the relive the top five moments in sports history from the week of April 30th through May the 6th. So without further delay, here we go. Number five, Cy Young pitches the first perfect game in baseball's modern era. Baseball entered the modern era in 1903 when the American League was formed under Ben Johnson and the first World Series was held between the Pittsburgh Pirates of the National League and the eventual champion Boston Americans. The Americans, now known as the Boston Red Sox, was led on the mound by legendary pitcher Cy Young, who was on his way to winning 511 games throughout his career. Now on May 5, 1904, Cy Young added to his remarkable resume as one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. On this day at the Huntington Avenue grounds in Boston, Cy Young became the first pitcher to toss a perfect game in baseball's modern era. On that afternoon, Boston blanked the Philadelphia Athletics 3-0 with Young striking out 8 for the win. Since 1900, there have been only 21 perfect games, some pitched by Hall of Famers such as Randy Johnson and Sandy Koufax, and there was also a World Series perfect game in 1956 by an unlikely pitcher, Don Larson of the New York Yankees, and all of those can be traced back to Cy Young in 1904. Number 4, Leicester City wins the English Premier League title. In the beginning of the 2015-2016 English Premier League season, Ozmakers had installed the Foxes of Leicester City as a 5,000-1 long shot to win the championship in the biggest English soccer league and perhaps the best league in the world. As the season began, nothing, was, nothing much was expected from the Foxes. They had a new manager in Claudio Ranieri. Yet, as the season began, striker Jamie Vardy scored 13 goals over the stretch of 11 consecutive matches. By December the 19th, Leicester had, defe had defeated Everton 3-2 to climb to the top of the Premier League standings where, exactly one year earlier, they were in last place. By April the 10th, Leicester City had won 2-0 at Sunderland and coupled with a Tottenham Hotspur 3-0 win over Manchester United, the Foxes qualified for the UEFA Champions League for the first time in team history. On May the 2nd, the Foxes claimed the Premier League title when Tottenham and Chelsea played to a 2-2 draw. A number of British newspapers described Leicester's title as the greatest sporting upset with the team earning the nickname the Unbelievables. Their incredible feat led to Ranieri being named Coach of the Year and the Foxes the Team of the Year. Hence, in sport, anything is possible, even with 5,001 odds. Number 3. Pittsburgh defeats New Orleans in the first ABA Finals. On May 4, 1968, the Pittsburgh Pipers, led by future Hall of Famer Connie Hawkins, defeated the New Orleans Buccaneers 122-113 at Pittsburgh Civic Arena in Game 7 of the very first ABA Final. You remember the ABA, don't you? The lead that introduced the three-point shot in the iconic red, white, and blue basketball. Yes, that ABA. Pipers forward Connie Hawkins was the Finals MVP, averaging 31 points per game. And the Pipers came into that season and that season's playoffs with the league's best 54-24 record. 
Meanwhile, their opponents, the New Orleans Buccaneers, were led by a future by, by a pair of future NBA coaching legends, point guard Larry Brown and forward Doug Moe. The Bucks finished at the top of the ABA's Western Conference with a record of 48 and 30, two games ahead of the Dallas Chaparrales, now known as the San Antonio Spurs. In the finals, both teams split the first two games in Pittsburgh, with the scene shifting to New Orleans and Loyola Fieldhouse. The Buccaneers would win Game 3, but the Pipers would win Game 4 in overtime as Connie Hawkins poured in 47 points. Led by Moe, the Buccaneers would capture Game 5 in Pittsburgh as, future Denver, as the future Denver Nuggets coach would score 31. Pittsburgh would win Game 6 back in New Orleans as Hawkins would score 41 points forcing a winner-take-all Game 7 back in Pittsburgh. In the seventh and deciding game, Hawkins and Charlie Williams each scored 35 as the Pipers claimed the 122-113 win, giving the Pipers its first and only ABA title. Number 2. Boston Garden hosts its last NBA game. May 5, 1995 marked the end of an era of NBA basketball as the Boston Celtics ended a 49-year run in what was considered one of the greatest and legendary sports arenas in the world. In their 95-92 loss to the Orlando Magic in Game 4 of the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs, the Boston Garden saw its final basketball game. Now the names of players that starred for the Celtics and ran up and down its fabled parquet floor are names of basketball legend and hoops royalty. Now, during his time, the Celtics won nine NBA titles on his floor, and some of the most dramatic games in the history of the league were played there. Havlicek stole the ball there. Game 5 of the 1976 NBA Finals between the Celtics and Suns is considered by many to be the greatest finals game ever. That was also played there. Michael Jordan scored 68 points in the playoff game there, and not to mention, and not just great NBA moments occurred there. Let's not forget the unbelievable goal scored by Bobby Orr in the 1970 Stanley Cup Final that was imitated by youngsters throughout, their, throughout New England in driveways in the early 1970s. It was also the place where, legend, where the legendary Celtic leprechaun lived and seemed to orchestrate the most improbable Celtic victories. Now on this date in May, one of the great arenas closed its doors for the final time and to this day is still missed and looked upon with great reverence. And now, the number one sports moment that took place between the days of April 30th and May 6th. And that is, Ron Turcotte wins the 1973 Kentucky Derby. Ron Turcotte, that name seems to ring a bell. I just can't quite place it. Oh, okay. On May 5th, 1973, Secretariat, written by Turcotte, and trained by Lucian Lauren, one of the first ladies of the Triple Crown, beating Sham by two and a half lengths. The race, viewed by then track record 134,000 spectators, saw Secretary finish first in the 13th horse field with a time of 1 minute and 59 seconds. In the days leading up to the race, Secretary was seen by the, as the favorite to win. And however, there were doubts about him following a third place finish at the Wood Memorial Stakes two weeks prior to the Derby. Now, in the, way the in the wake of Secretary's loss, Angolite, and in particular Sham, were the horses that were seen most likely to win the Derby. And aside from, aside from Secretary, many sports writers believed that the horses in the field possessed great speed throughout the course and, through, and the course record would probably be broken. Shecky Green took the lead first and led for the majority of the, of the first seven furlongs. Sham took the lead from Shecky Green near the three-quarter mile mark, and as the horses entered the home stretch, Secretariat passed Sham in the final furlong and distanced himself to consolidate his lead. Secretariat would go on to win the Preakness and Belmont States in the succeeding weeks, thus becoming the ninth horse to complete the Triple Crown of Thoroughbred Racing. And that would do it for this edition of the Top 5, and coming up next, we'll send a shout out to one of the most famous and bitter rivalries in NBA history. A rivalry which has been going on for 60 years and a new chapter is being written as we speak in this year's NBA playoffs. More on this hoops turf war when we come back. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One. 
an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. And I'm glad you were able to stick around and to round out this episode of the podcast. We normally end it with a sports history shout out. And in this episode, we'll send a shout out to one of the greatest rivalries in sports. And the newest chapter of this bitter, hardcore feud is being written as you listen to this podcast wherever you may be. The Celtics-Sixers rivalry in the NBA may be one of the most heated and long-standing rivalries in that league. Not only are they bitter and long-time division rivals, but their 21 meetings in the NBA postseason is the most in the league. Now, when you talk about rivalries in the NBA, the Lakers-Celtic rivalry is at the top. But coming in a close second is is the one between Boston and Philly. In the 21 meetings between the two clubs, Boston has won 14 of them. In 1963, the Syracuse Nationals had moved to Philadelphia and changed their name to the 76ers. And shortly after that, the 1965 All-Star break saw the Sixers acquire Philadelphia native Wilt Chamberlain from the San Francisco Warriors, bringing an added element to the Boston-Philly rivalry, which now became the Chamberlain versus Russell rivalry. The Celtics and Sixers met in the Eastern Conference Finals that season with a trip to the NBA Finals on the line. And with the series tied as three games apiece and in Game 7 being held at Boston Garden with five seconds left, one of the most amazing and one of the most iconic NBA moments happened. When Boston leading 110-109, to Russell tried to inbound the ball when it hit a guide wire that supported the backboard, which resulted in a Celtic turnover giving the ball back to the Sixers. However, Philly failed to capitalize when Celtics forward John Halicek defended the, deflected the inbound pass to Sam Jones who dribbled out the clock. The Celtics advanced to the NBA Finals and defeated the Lakers in five games for their seventh straight title. In the 1966 season, the Sixers looked poised to end Boston's seven-year reign as NBA champs. Boston, uh, Philadelphia, excuse me, won the regular season series against Boston six games to four and finished 55 and 25 to beat out the Celtics by one game to win the number one seed in the Eastern Division. Chamberlain, who also won MVP over Russell that year, had won three of the four previous MVP awards. However, when they met in the conference championship, Boston defeated Philly four games to one and went on to win their eighth straight NBA title. The next year, the Sixers brought in Alex Hannum as head coach. Hannum, who had also coached Bob Pettit in St. Louis in the 1958 NBA Championship, that year someone had defeated. That was the last time someone had defeated the Celtics in the championship. The Sixers went on a then NBA record 68 and 13 mark, while the Celtics were 60 and 21. In the Eastern Conference Finals, the Sixers overpowered Boston beating them in five games and ending Boston's eight-year reign as NBA champions. The Sixers ended up winning the NBA championship that year, beating the San Francisco Warriors in six games, giving the Sixers and Chamberlain their first NBA title. 
The 66-67 Philadelphia 76ers are believed by many as one of the greatest teams in NBA history. In 1968, the Sixers finished 62-20, eight games above Boston, and Chamberlain won his third consecutive Most Valuable Player Award. Both teams met in the conference finals again, and the Celtics won the series in seven games after trailing three games to one to go on to win the 1968 NBA championship. After the season, 76ers head coach Alex Hannum left the NBA for the ABA in order to move closer to his family who lived on the West Coast, and Chamberlain requested a trade and was traded to the Los Angeles Lakers. In 1969, without the services of Chamberlain and Coach Hannum, the Sixers still managed a 55-27 record. Though Philadelphia again won the regular season series against the Celtics, they were no match for Boston in the, in the playoffs, losing four games to one. The Celtics went on to win their 11th championship in 13 seasons once again against the Los Angeles Lakers. And after this season, Russell retired and both teams would not meet in the playoffs again until 1977. The Sixers had slumped until acquiring Julius Irving before the 1977 season as part of the ABA dispersal draft. They became a contender in the East almost overnight and in Irving's first season with the team, the Sixers eliminated the defending champion Boston Celtics in a tough seven-game Eastern Conference semifinals in 1977. Boston, however, slumped for the next two years, while Philadelphia continued to be a strong team in the NBA. But in 1978, the Celtics drafted Indiana State forward Larry Bird in hopes of reviving their glory years as a franchise. Bird joined the Celtics for the 1980 season and his impact was undeniably immediate. The Celtics improved from 29-53 in the 1978-79 season to a league-best 61-21 mark in 79-80 and advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals. That season, an old foe was waiting for them. You guessed it, the Sixers. Philly would eliminate the Celtics in five games but failed to win the title against the Lakers. The next season, 1981, both the Celtics and Sixers finished with the best record in the NBA, 62 and 20. But Boston failed to fail. But Boston held the tiebreaker in the standings. In a classic seven-game Eastern Conference Finals, the Celtics beat the Sixers in 81, four games to three, coming all the way back from a 3-1 deficit to win three consecutive games in classic finishes. The Celtics won Game Five and Six, both by two. And in the seventh game by one point, 91 to 90, coming back from a seven point deficit with just three minutes left to win on a Larry Bird bank shot from the left side with barely a minute left. The Celtics then defeated the Houston Rockets on their way to their first title in five years. And for the 1981-82 season, the Celtics again had the best record in the NBA, 63 and 19, followed by Phillies 58 and 24. With one of the Sixers' key victories in the regular season being a win at Boston to snap the Celtics' 18-game winning streak that year. In the 82 Eastern Finals, Boston attempted to come back from a similar 3-1 predicament and managed to extend the, season, the series to seven games. With the seventh game being played at Rockers Boston Garden, however, Philly had the last laugh, winning Game 7. In that finale, Boston fans saw their team losing and in a show of respect, they congratulated the Sixers by shouting the now famous Beat LA chant as the Sixers were about to face the well-rested Lakers. And as it turned out, the weary Sixers couldn't keep up, losing to the Lakers in the finals once again. The Celtics and the Sixers were, at for a time, Two teams that were on a collision course in the NBA postseason every year. The familiar names from the 60s were replaced by new ones. Julius Irving, Mark Ivoroni, Bobby Jones, Caldwell Jones, Maurice Cheeks, and who could forget Andrew, Andrew Tony, also known as the Boston Strangler. For the Celtics in the early 80s, there was of course Larry Bird. But there was also the likes of Cedric Maxwell and Nate Tiny Archibald and Kevin McHale. Robert Parrish, ML Carr, and Scott Wedman, just to name a few. The rivalry, though, went dormant and is still heated 
but these two longtime Bitter East Coast enemies have met in the postseason only five times since 1984, and this year will be their first postseason meeting since 2018. In this NBA postseason, with both teams taking the floor, the memories of these two historic franchises in the postseason will flood back to a lot of basketball fans and harken back to great matchups between Hall of Fame players, Hall of Fame coaches, and passionate basketball fan bases. Wouldn't you agree that the NBA is much better when these two teams are battling in the playoffs with the season on the line? There is something about that that feels appropriate and feels so right. And that would do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you could get new episodes when they are released. And check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend, even tell a passerby on the street about us. I would really, really, really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dana Augustus, your host, saying so long. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.